you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to take the first 25 verses tonight. In a message that I've loosely entitled The Sign Gifts. And the reason that I'm giving it that title is because very often when people think about spiritual giftedness, there are a number of gifts that people would refer to as gifts that are a sign that that person has the Spirit of the Lord upon their life. So much so that these sign gifts are actually used sometimes in an inerrant way as a test of salvation. In other words, if you possess them, you are in fact a child of God. And so I hope and pray tonight as we take a look at what the scriptures have to say that we can put these gifts in their proper place as the scriptures actually declare them. Very specifically, the Apostle Paul writing in this chapter about the gift of tongues. And the reason this gift uh, to me is the one that needs the deepest explanation in our modern world is there are a number of groups of people, we would call them Pentecostals or hyper-Pentecostal people, that believe that the gift of tongues is so important that it needs to be used in every church service, in every situation, and pretty much if you don't have the gift of tongues, that you're not a believer. And so I I really want to set this in a biblical framework. And so as we look at what the scriptures have to say, I want you to read these verses with me carefully as we go through them, because this chapter puts this to rest. It also puts to rest the heresy of cessationism, which is that all of the gifts of the Spirit died with the apostles in the first century. So those two groups, continuationists on one side, which Calvary Chapel falls into that category, We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still active in the church today. And the cessationists believe that there are no gifts being used that are described here in Scripture in the church today. In other words, the gift of prophecy, gift of tongues, those types of things, the sign gifts. The Scriptures actually help us out with this, as you would think they would. Amen? Interestingly enough, the same group that uses this as their proof text for one side, the other side uses it as well. So it's a very important chapter for us to really look at in some details to get this right so that we have the right view about the sign gifts. Amen? Would you join me and let's pray. We'll pick up in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14. Father, thank you that you're not the author of confusion. Lord, that you are, in fact, the, the one who ordered the universe and keeps it spinning In fact, all gifts, all gifts used apart from love, the gift of teaching, the gift of prophecy, Lord, even the gift of encouragement, you can unlovingly encourage someone, you can encourage them too harshly. And so God, we pray that we'd have the right balance, give us the mind to hear tonight what the Spirit would say to the church, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1. And it begins, and I'm going to take the first four verses, and then we'll take a break. Pursue love. Now remember that this whole treatise on spiritual giftedness began not in chapter 13, but in chapter 12. So what we call chapter 12, Paul picks up this thought about spiritual giftedness. 
People who are using the fullness of what God has done in their life. At the end of chapter 12, he makes the statement, desire the greatest gifts. He then goes on in chapter 13 and says that you could have all the gifts, but not exercise them with love. They're useless. And so now he's focusing in on a, really on a single gift. And that gift is the gift of tongues. But what does it really say? Pursue love. Desire spiritual gifts. But especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue, a glossa, does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. And so I want to take a moment because there is, and I'll stop short of calling it a heresy, but there is an improper usage of a word that was constructed first in 1830 and then passed along through the Pentecostal movement in America in 1879 that is bantered about and and tossed around in churches and in circles. That this word that we have here that describes tongue or tongues is in fact a word glossolalia or glossolalia. That is absolutely an error. Every manuscript that we have, the term that's used here is glossa, from which we get the English word glossary. It simply means language or tongue. The reason that it's translated that way is not because of the words used, but because of the context in which they're used. And so there is a forced meaning that's applied by putting the word glossa, And lelio, together, lelio meaning to speak forth. And so you take language and speak forth and you jam them together and you make up a word, glossolalia. That word is the word that's used when people try and describe this heavenly language that they're speaking in. So let's for a moment say that that word was actually there. Let's look and see if what the Bible says about the usage of this particular type of the speaking of a tongue actually fits into a category of something that we should be worrying about in a setting called church, in a public setting. Let's see what the Apostle Paul actually says about it because he's the only one that writes about it in all of Scripture. It's found nowhere else but here. And so as we look at this, it's important that we realize that the word translated tongue or tongues here is not some new word, but it is in fact the word that has been consistently used and is used exactly this way in the book of Acts in chapter 2 to mean a language. Now it could be a language of angels, it could be a language of English, it could be the language of Spanish, it could be the language of some dialect, it could be the language of Chinese, it could be any kind of language because it's neutral in that environment. 
It simply means a tongue or a language. So as you think on this gift, which it clearly says that there is a gift, what exactly is it? You see, the church at Corinth had begun to use this supposed gift as a means to fight with. So that completely negates the very thing that Paul's just finished teaching on. Amen? They were beating each, up, beating each other up with this supposed language that was a heavenly language. And so Paul opens up this chapter by saying, I would rather that you all prophesy. I would rather that you spoke for things that encouraged the entire church. But he's now going to go on and address the gift of tongues. So this separation that we have in the church today is very similar to the separation that existed in the church in Corinth. You had people that believed that there needs to be some kind of ecstatic speech and everybody speaks in it. And when they speak in it, it's a sign that the Spirit's moving. And then you have those who say, well, it died with the apostle, and so we don't really need to worry about that gift. Strikingly similar to the very struggle that we have in the church today, isn't it? You see, what's happening here is the first step, the first thing we need to realize is for any gift, every gift, you have to have the proper motivation for the gift itself. Is there any passage of scripture that anyone is aware of in the entire Bible that says anywhere at any time the believer in Christ is supposed to be specifically self-absorbed? Self-focused. Concerned with their own self when you're in a public setting? The answer to that question is no, there isn't one. And in fact, the whole totality of the New Testament tells us that we are to, in fact, be other-centered always when we are in a collective or group setting. That's what the word servant means. It means to serve another. And Jesus said, he who desires among you to be great must become the speaker of tongues. No, it actually says the servant of all, doesn't it? There in Mark chapter 10, verse 44. And so as we look at this tongue, this gift, you have to have the proper motivation in order to even discuss it. Because when we talk about spiritual giftedness, the whole purpose for spiritual giftedness is to bless other people. It's never selfish. There are times when we are built up ourselves, when we sit down and we go to our prayer closet and we pray, we're building ourselves up, but even then the focus is actually outward, isn't it? I hope all of you don't sit in your prayer closet and pray for yourself all day long. Now, it's good to pray for yourself, by the way, but I'm pretty sure your list is going to get awfully short if all you ever do is pray for yourself. So every spiritual gift in that sense is outward focused. It edifies the whole church, the greater gifts, if you will, those special abilities that God would give us. Paul wanted to edify the whole church. And so he says very plainly, look, here's the deal. 
the gift of prophecy, which, by the way, to desire something means to pursue, strive for, seek after, aspire to. It, it means to really seek after it. So we're supposed to be looking for these things, these gifts. But the gift of prophecy, when it's spoken into the church, is not so much foretelling the future. It's speaking forth what God's already said. And while it can be the speaking forth of what is yet to come, it is most often the speaking forth of what's already been said by God. So I can prophesy to you every single day of your life by simply reading the Bible to you. You follow that? Because when I speak forth what God has said, that's what it means to prophetically speak. I am carrying a message that God himself has spoken. That message is your Bible for sure. We know that to be true. So in that sense, I can speak into your life. And this was much the view of many of the reformers. And it's it's the view of many in the church today. And here's the problem with taking it to the other place. In other words, speaking forth some special word. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because for those of you that think this particular gift, the gift of prophecy that Paul is speaking about here, is only the speaking forth of events yet to come. In other words, speaking forth prophetic things that have not yet been spoken by God, you should be warned. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak forth a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall, oops, die. And again, Old Testament, praise the Lord, that we're not under the law. But God took very seriously the inference that I am speaking for God. So when I say to you, thus says the Lord, and I say, you shall walk in the spirit, so you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, guess what? I'm not worried about misrepresenting God. Why? Because he said that. But if I say to you, you know, if you invest $10,000 in the stock market in company X, you're going to get 10 times your return next week. And you come back and you lose half of what you put in, um, you might very well shoot the false prophet Jeff. (laughs) Amen? So the speaking forth of things on God's behalf, God takes very seriously. Notice what it says. And if you say in your, your heart, How shall I know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and if that thing does not happen, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, and the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So it's a dangerous thing to get in the habit of saying, I am a prophet unless the only thing you say is what God has already said. Now, it doesn't mean you can't receive a word from the Lord, and people do. But I'm pretty sure a vast majority of the things that people attribute to God, God didn't actually say. You know why I know that? Because they don't come true. I've had people prophesy over my life so many times that I, I can't, I've lost count. 
And I've had them say very well-intentioned, wonderful things. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. God's going to do this. God's going to do that. You're going to move to Hawaii because I saw it in the clouds. Still waiting for that one to come true. So all kinds of things that you can, you can say. And so what do you think, if God was trying to reach the broadest amount of the body, what do you think he would be meaning when he says, I would wish that you would all prophesy? I'm pretty sure it isn't all special revelation from the Lord, but it is speaking forth what the Lord has already spoken. Most of your Bibles have roughly two and a half thousand pages of, of information in them. Spoken by the Lord. That's plenty for you to prophesy with for the rest of your days. If the Lord gives you something else, praise the Lord. But I think that's going to be fairly rare. Notice that it also says that the reason for this is to build up the body of Christ, the entirety of the church. So speaking mysterious things, some strange language, some thing that is unintelligible, whether it revolves around prayer or praise, whether it's some kind of special language, it has to do something for the church. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says it's supposed to build up the church. They need to keep that value in perspective. It's to edify all believers. And throughout his writings, Paul says the gift of tongues, speaking in a spiritual way from the Lord, it is a gift. But he also goes on to say that it's not a requirement for salvation. He says it is much less important than the gift of prophecy and teaching. And that if it's ever used, it must, must, must be interpreted. It is not ever to be used in a public setting unless there is an interpreter present. Why? Because it's for the edification of the church. So if nobody interprets it and nobody knows what they're saying, it doesn't edify the church, amen? So you can always tell when someone is out of control in this way because there's no one interpreting. There's not a person sitting there, well, that means thus. It's just a bunch of unintelligible things. And so later we'll dig into to speak or not to speak. There are basically four approaches to this particular gift, really to all gifts. And there are what we could call the studious or the ignorant neglect type of category. That would be the agnostic understanding of things that we could understand, but we choose not to because we want to just say that they don't exist. There are people that just simply dismiss the fact that the gift of tongues is actually listed in Scripture. They just out of hand to say it, nah, that's not, it couldn't possibly still be. There are others who reject it by historical limitation. Historical limitation means this, that sure, the apostles had it. They met with Jesus. They saw him face to face. The apostle Paul met him on the Damascus Road. These were special individuals with special gifts. And so when they died, those special gifts died with them. Those are what we call cessationists, people that believe that it was just a special gift, special time, and when the apostles died, that gift also died. Then there's the people who have the emphatic approval of spiritual gifts, and those are what we would call hyper-Pentecostals, 
Those are, those are people who believe that everyone should have the gift of tongues and everyone should use the gift of tongues in every setting, every time they get together. That's the emphatic approval tr- group. We, we would call them, in essence, the, the hyper-continuationist, the person that believes that not only did it exist in the time of the apostles, but because we have gotten spiritually more mature all along the way, a person today actually ought to speak in tongues more than somebody in the first century. And then you have the group that I think we all fit into. And that's cautious acceptance. The Bible says it. That's enough for me to believe it. I can look at it and say God intends for us to understand this, but within the context that it's actually written. Me adding nothing to it. I simply believe what the Apostle Paul says. I treat it as though God spoke through the Apostle Paul and put some very tight limitations, very specifically, on the gift of tongues. So let's look at some of these basics, if you will. And and you have to admit, Paul is downplaying the gift of tongues in this passage, so much so that he's going to get right down to the nitty-gritty of it here very shortly. Verse 5, I wish you all spoke in tongues but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, if we know that the test of a prophet is that it has to be true, and it's supposed to edify the entire church, that's a fairly limited window of information, isn't it? It has to be universally provable to edify the church. It can't just be some arbitrary thing like, The sky is going to be purple in Mongolia on a mountaintop next week if you're standing upside down, looking between your legs through a canyon with rocks in it. That kind of those are obscure things that would never build up the church. Amen? So it has to be something that actually is going to build up the church. All of Scripture, the Apostle Peter said, was written for the building up of the church. Amen? So we can use that as a, as a basic way for us to understand this. He prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So he begins by saying, look, if you're going to use this gift, it has to be used with a gift of interpretation. It cannot be you sitting there in your pew babbling, bada Honda should have bada Honda. And I know that may offend some of you in here, but I have sat around people doing that exact very thing over and 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 over again in a public setting, and it did nothing to edify the church. But it did cause people to think that they were a little bit off the rocker. And again, I'm not actually trying to mock. I'm trying to tell you that's the truth of it. I have sat down and talked with people. Why are you doing that in a public setting? Well, because I'm filled with the Spirit. So you're filled with the Spirit, but you're completely out of control because you can't control yourself. You keep repeating the same thing, and you don't have an interpreter, and nobody knows what it means. And they'll go, well, you know, I'm speaking in the Spirit. And I'm going, well, but the Apostle Paul said, don't use it in public unless there's an interpreter. Well, that's legalistic. No, that's actually what the Bible says. That's what it says. That's not my interpretation. The same guy that mentions the gift tells us how to use the gift. Amen? So he says, verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you 
unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, or by prophesying? Uh, Answer, it won't. Because if you don't understand what I'm saying, how do you get built up? If you can't agree and say yes and amen, how do you get built up? Verse 7, even things without life. This is, and, and it always amazes me when people talk about this particular subject that they refuse to go to this chapter and just actually read what it says. Even things without life, whether a flute or a harp, whether they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? Amen? That's so incredibly simple to understand. You will not know Beethoven's Fifth Symphony unless you understand music and notes and context. Amen? You will not understand any language unless you understand the language itself, what each individual word means, and the ability to assemble them together in syntax and sentences. Amen? That's why when you go to a foreign country and someone's speaking a foreign language, you don't get it. Amen? It's not that hard. So if we all come in here, and I can give you an example of this. We were, I was going to try this, but I couldn't afford all of the flutes and harps. If we gave everyone in here, because probably most of you are non-fluent in flute and heart, harp, and so if we gave you each a flute and a harp and we just said, go for it, and you all start plucking away and doing all that kind of stuff, what, what kind of music do you think we're going to make? It's going to be noise. Why? Because the notes are not together, there's no harmonies, there's no fluidity to it, there is no construction to it, it is utter chaos, it means nothing to anyone. This is the description Paul's using for tongues without interpretation. He's saying if somebody doesn't understand it, it's like musical instruments being played by somebody who doesn't know how to play them. We happen to be blessed with a wonderful worship team, amen? I can tell you this, they know how to play their instruments. And the reason we know that is you're not all out there going like, oh man, what was that? Because they know that certain notes go with certain other notes. Harmonies go with certain other harmonies. Words have to be joined together lyrically with the notes assigned to the specific part of the word so that they blend together, amen? Amen. That's what music is, but you all understand that. That's the point that the Apostle Paul's making. So he uses three things. He says musical instruments. If you can't play one, it sounds terrible. Verse 8. For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? There's the second example. For those of you with military experience or maybe Boy Scouts would work, uh, when a trumpeter comes out and plays revelry, what happens? Everybody runs. We start heading to the, where it's time to get up. Why? Because that is the certain sound that is made in the morning that tells you it is time to assemble. But why is that? Because we know that that is the certain sound that is played in the morning that causes us to assemble. We know what it means. And the same is true at the end of the day for taps and all those kind of things. We know what they mean. So he gives that as an example. The third example, check this out. 
you ought to all be able to get this one. And so likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into air. How many of you have had the opportunity to travel to a foreign country? Raise your hand for me. How many of you are fluent in some other language other than English? How many of you are fluent in some other language besides English and Spanish? (laughs) Mine's the only hand that's up. (laughs) Oh, we got one. You can un bisschen Deutsch sprechen, yeah? Parlez-vous français? Oui? Okay, so, so there's a few of us in here who are multilingual. And I'm not really fluent in those languages. I can speak them get myself in trouble. <laughs> but if you're not fluent, and let's say you don't speak Spanish and you go to Mexico, what do you need? Google Translate. Amen? <laughs> you pull out your phone. You speak into it. I'd like to know where the bathroom is. Donde esta el baño? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? So we're, we're, like, we're like, because we don't know, we have to ask somebody. There needs to be somebody there, otherwise y'all going to be going like this. Right? That's all Paul's saying. It's the same with the gift of tongues. Since it's better that you speak a language, otherwise you're speaking into thin air. When you travel in Europe, you can know Hochdeutsch, you can know High German, but when you go into Bavaria, they speak Bavarian, and when you go to Austria and to the Kärnten province, they speak Kärntnerish. You even have to know dialects. There, there is a thing in view here that when you're speaking to somebody, you're supposed to speak in a way that they can understand and know what it is that you're saying so they can agree with you and be edified. Otherwise, you're speaking into thin air. Verse 10. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world that none of them is without significance. So he's he's not saying that there's a problem with one language versus another language or that there is a spiritual language that you may hear from the Lord by the Spirit. So he's very clearly saying it's not that you speak in a language to God. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of that language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks And he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you're jealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And what's the quickest way to seek the edification of the church? Speak in a language that everybody understands. When I travel to a foreign country, because I am not culturally, even though I might be able to speak in a you know, a minimalistic way in a specific language, I almost always teach in English and am translated. Why? Because I want the person to be able to understand everything. If I just use my tiny bit of Spanish or my little bit of German or I use a little bit of French and I use a few words, I may mess up. But if I speak in English and someone translates it for me, then they can translate it not only linguistically, but they can translate it culturally. They can say, oh, that word means this in this culture at this time. And so Paul's making that case. When you put two people who speak different languages in the same room and they attempt to communicate, you know what happens? Not much. Do a lot of sign language. You do a lot of pointing. 
First, first, thing you, first phrase you need to learn in every language is how do you say? Como se dice? Voestes. You know, you, it's all the same. You, what is this? That's the same thing that happens spiritually. It's what happens in church. What is this? Why are we here? What are we here to do? What are we here to hear? We're here to hear from, we're, we're in this place to hear from the Lord. Amen? I want to hear from God. I want God to speak into our lives. So that speaking has to be beneficial to the church. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's not for my personal experience. I'm sharing with you for the edification of the church. I'm not sharing with you because I don't already know what this says. I'm sharing with you so you can know what it says. And so when you share with someone else, you're sharing so that they can grow, so they can be built up. So if I say something they don't understand, at the very best, they're just going to walk away somewhat perplexed. Worse, you may actually frighten them from a relationship with the Lord. You may actually scare them away. They may be, wow, that's a little too much for me. Not sure about that. And that's a tragedy. Verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Do you get it? Even sometimes the person who prays in the spirit is unfruitful in their understanding. In other words, they're, they're praying in some unknown tongue and they themselves are not necessarily understanding what they're praying. It's just a direct input from the spirit of God. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to do something in their life. But if the person who's praying that way doesn't get it, do you think the rest of the church is going to get it unless somebody's there to say, that's what this means? Verse 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray in the Spirit, but I'll also pray with understanding. I will sing in the Spirit, but I'll also sing with understanding. Paul's basically saying, look, I I believe in this gift. I myself want to have it. But when I'm in public, I do it with understanding. I make sure that everybody knows what's going on so they can be built up. Now, I can tell you that there is a certain place that even the melody itself, sung by all of you without the words can be uplifting, amen? But the fact of the matter is that we're to ponder the praise that we offer to God. We're, we're to think on those words. There are times when I'm worshiping the Lord, I'm listening to the words of the song, and I'm going, Lord, straight into the throne room of heaven is where I've gone. It's not because of the band being melodious. That helps. But it's actually my understanding that gets me there. The grace of, when you sing about the grace of God, you understand the grace of God. When you sing about the blood of the cross, you understand what Christ did on the cross. It's not just the melody. You see, I could hum the melody, but without the understanding, it's not the same, is it? Take the words out of a praise song and see if you go to the same place. 
It's the understanding that causes you to do that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. You know, it's not the same, is it? Helps us think on what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So it boils down to why are you actually speaking in tongues? Verse 18. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. So Paul's not saying there is no such thing as the gift of tongues. Speaking in a language. Yet in the church, notice it, yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. For you mathematicians, you want to do some quick math there? What is that? It's 99.95% of the time Paul would rather speak so that someone can understand him. Paul's basically saying, look, in the church, in a room filled with people who are either already believers, who are seeking the Lord, desiring a relationship with God, want to know what this God thing is all about, want to know who Jesus is, he says, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others than... 9,995 in a tongue. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It kind of gives you a, a sense of where the Apostle Paul is landing on all this. He's not denying that there's a gift, a spiritual gift. He's just simply saying that when I'm in church, I'd rather let people hear something that can build them up, edify them. He consistently, no doubt, used tongues in his, in his own private prayer time, speaking to God. In fact, he said in his letter to the church at Corinth in the second letter, look, I, there are times when I just simply groan in the spirit. I'm not even sure what I'm saying. I know God knows. But you see, when you start making it a test of fellowship, when you start putting it on an application, that if you have this gift, you can belong or you can be, you have misrepresented what the scriptures say about the gift of tongues. When you make it a test of salvation, you have insanely misrepresented the gift of tongues. Because nowhere in scripture does it even intimate that it's even necessary in the life of any believer, much less a test of your salvation. Or a test of spirituality. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul. He's saying, look, you want to be able to understand music, don't you? If there's a war, you want to know when to go to war, don't you? If you're speaking in a foreign language, you want to be understood, don't you? Can I tell you that the grace of God is a foreign language to an unbeliever? So he doesn't need some other foreign language being spoken to him. He needs the language of love. He needs the gospel being spoken in a language that he can understand. She can understand. We can understand. We can communicate. So this gift is helpful. 
but is generally not helpful in the body in a public sense. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, verse 20 says. However, in malice be babes, in understanding be mature. He's he's reprimanding them. He's saying, look, don't be babies about this. Don't have this wrong. Stop acting like children. The excitement, the ecstasy, the the things that are going on when you're you're using this gift this way, you're misrepresenting the Lord. You're being infants. You're being immature. Understand these things properly. Verse 21 says, In the law it is written... Men with other tongues and other lips will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they, all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. That's quoted from Isaiah 28. He's saying, look, this, this has been a problem throughout time. People in Isaiah's time didn't listen to the prophets when the prophets spoke in their own language. So it's not going to get better when you speak in some other language, when you're trying to communicate the goodness of God. Amen? If I want to share with you the goodness of God, I want to share with you the goodness of God. I want to be on point with it. I want to tell you what God wants to say to you. The good news of the gospel is what the unbeliever needs to hear. And the good news that you are being sanctified, turned into a saint more like Jesus, is what the believer needs to hear. That's what you need to hear. Not not me exalting myself by giving you some understanding that, wow, he's doing something I can't do. That's not going to help you. And in fact, it may very well make you depressed because you don't have it. Maybe you never will. There's no place in Scripture that says everyone ever gets the gift of tongues. So there's a possibility that many of you will transit this earth in your time with the Lord and never speak in tongues. Some of you will be part of your daily prayer life. Some of you with interpretation, you may speak forth a word and it is interpreted properly and someone is edified with it. But Paul's speaking of the whole here in this chapter. And therefore, verse 22, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So in church, we're supposed to speak forth the things that God has spoken. He's just simply making an argument from reason here. And yes, sometimes tongues can reach unbelievers with interpretation. So they're actually still getting the understanding. But most of the time when I'm talking to people who speak English, I speak in English. Well, kind of English. English, Spanglish, Germanish, something. Verse 23, And therefore if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, check this out, and all speak with tongues, and there come in some who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say, you are out of your mind? So Pastor Jeff didn't make that up, did he? No, that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, the gift of tongues used in an improper way in a public setting leads people to think who don't know the Lord 
that you don't quite have all your brain cells in the right place. That's a pretty strong indictment. And again, this is from the person who gives us this gift in that sense. Repeats it to us and says, look, it's there. But the way that they were doing was helping no one. Even if they were speaking one at a time, without interpretation of those words spoken, nobody's going to understand it. But certainly if corporately they all got together and everybody's in their own little world speaking in tongues, who can say amen? Notice what he says in verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Do you get it? It does something in everyone's life. It transmits truth to them. It causes them to know something about the true and the living God. And thus the secrets of the heart are revealed. In other words, their heart is rent. It's opened. The heart's revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among these people. This gift is so clearly described in this chapter that I actually don't understand how people can miss it. I don't know how someone can get it wrong, quite frankly. But I can tell you an awful lot of people do. And so I pray you are not among them. I pray that you believe what scripture says about the gift of tongues. That it's still in the church today. That it's used in certain situations at certain times, most often privately, And when in public, always with interpretation, so that someone hearing it will know exactly what is being said, so that the church will be edified, because the Apostle Paul over and over and over and over and over again, now for three chapters, has said spiritual gifts are for the body to bring about unity and growth. They're not for you, they're for others. You do get something from it because the Lord is speaking into your life, but they're primarily so that other people can get something from what God's doing in your life. The conviction of sin is pretty important, isn't it? This is in my life. I want God to speak into my life. The convincing of the truth of the gospel is pretty important, isn't it? Can you imagine if somebody never spoke to you in your own language and tried to present the gospel to you? Think about that one for a second. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, doesn't it? It doesn't come by spiritual experience. It comes by the word being spoken forth into our lives. It comes by truth. It comes by you being told what God is saying to you. You see, what happens in that secret place is God reveals our hearts. And then people fall down on their knees and then they worship God. And ultimately, the church grows through that type of experience. One of the problems with being experientially driven is experiences come and go, amen? I can tell you when you're sitting in a hospital visiting someone who's going to die, there is no spiritual high there in that sense. There's no magnificent praise before the throne. You're agonizing before the throne. You're on your knees. You're like, Lord, please be merciful and gracious and kind. If you're waiting for some major event to happen, you're probably not going to see it. 
but I can tell you what comfort you're bringing by just simply being there and speaking words of comfort into that person's life. If we got together at every church service and we just we said, it's praise Sunday, if you have an instrument, bring it and play it. Can you imagine? <laughs> Think about that one for a second. How many of you have been to a symphony while they're tuning? Oh my goodness. That is an unpleasant noise, isn't it? They're intentionally tuning their instruments and they're not in tune yet. And they're not even playing the same note. It's all it's just chaos. It's not beautiful. It's not beautiful until what happens? It's not beautiful until the conductor pulls everything together so that on the downbeat the exact same note is played so that everyone hears everything they're supposed to hear. That's what the gift of tongues is like. It's supposed to draw us to the conductor. Guess who that is? The Lord Jesus. By the power of his word. It draws us to God. He's the one orchestrating your life, isn't he? It's not me. It's not this church. It's not the the pastors. It isn't us as the staff. The Lord Jesus is orchestrating these things. And he brings us what we need. So that when he puts the orchestra together, and that's all of you, that we can play beautiful music together. By the power of his spirit. And that primarily is the work of convicting of sin and convincing of righteousness. That's the work of the spirit. That's what Jesus said about the work of the spirit. When the spirit comes, he will convict of sin and of righteousness. So we can expect the primary work of the Spirit to be, in love, the conviction of sin and righteousness. That's the primary work. Focus on that one, and you won't have to worry about much for the rest of your life if you want to do things for the Lord. Because there'll be plenty for you to do. Just telling the world about Jesus, how much he loves them, how much he desires for them to grow. The rest of these things, if God wants you to have the gift of tongues, you'll get it. If you don't get it, don't worry about it. Not because I say so. Scripture says so. Apostle Paul says so. Amen? Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word. And Lord, we do desire the greatest, the best gifts. And Lord, we certainly believe that you speak through unknown tongues today, sometimes in language and sometimes as we speak to you in the private of our own hearts and every once in a while, Lord, even in public. But because you're all about building us up, Lord, saving us first, but then building your church, growing your church, maturing your church, Help us to be mature with the use of the gifts. We pray that you'd work in us, Lord, to accomplish great and mighty things. Would you give us, Lord, the gift of tongues? Give us the gift of prophecy. Lord, in measure as according to your plan for our lives. Would you help, to spe- help us to speak forth words of encouragement and comfort? Lord, but most importantly, help us to love. Help us to love, Lord, as you love. We bless you for the spiritual gifts. Pray that you would grow them in this, your church. In Jesus' name.
Amen.